0: Good morning. I am not Scott. Oops. Don't touch things. Bring it closer. All right. Um, He he told me to preach 30 minutes, and that's it. They're going to unplug the microphone at that point. But I noticed he went about 45 last week. non-tech nerd. I'm a biblical theological nerd. I think there's a gift there somewhere in 1 Corinthians 14 that has that in there. Healing, tongues, nerd. So you'll have to bear with me. But my my goal this morning is really to... um, If you don't trust in Jesus... And another way of saying that is you don't treasure Jesus above all things, then I pray that this morning would be the first day where you find the greatest treasure you're ever going to find. And it's amazing the parables that he told about that, that his kingdom, it's worth selling everything to buy that little plot of ground that contains the truth of his kingdom. And if you do believe, and you do treasure Christ um, above all things, I pray that this sermon will help you to continue to treasure Christ above all things. Because that that is a thing, you know, it's like, um, there's all these debates about God's sovereignty and once saved, always saved, we can have these sort of esoteric philosophical discussions that I actually think are pretty important, but there are also passages exhorting us to not drift away to not fall from our secure position. So there is this need for Christians to continue to feed on the word and to continue to be just blown away, frankly, with the awesomeness of our God, because he is truly awesome. And um, let me pray for me and pray for us. It was funny, everybody this morning in the prayer meeting thought Scott was preaching, so they were praying for Scott. (laughs) So if it's a really bad sermon, it's because of the prayer meeting. Um, no, in all honesty, I know God knows who was preaching, so I knew that I was getting the, those prayers coming my way. So Father, we just um, just celebrate you here this morning, and we recognize you as the only God. You are the one true God, and there is no other. And Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. He came to save, and he came with powerful signs and wonders. And then you, Lord, you commissioned your apostles to continue those signs and wonders. And we'll study about that this morning. And I pray, God, help me to expound your word in a way that magnifies you and values you, Lord, for who you are. And that, God, you would bless us as we hear this, as we celebrate you, as we learn. God, bless us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit fall upon this place and fill us, God, with your love, with your truth, with your hope, with the fruit of the Spirit. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning uh, for about an hour and a half. No, um, It's tempting because there's so much that we could talk about. But the first thing, Scott preached a wonderful message last week on Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. And one of the things, because I am a biblical theological nerd, I can't help but talk about this, that Pentecost is actually fascinating because... As he mentioned last week, it's the Feast of Weeks. So what you have, the three major feasts listed in Deuteronomy 16 is Passover. And then on the 50th day after Passover is the Feast of Weeks. Now, each of these festivals, these weren't just empty religious observances. These were times in which the faith of Israel was to be built up in the greatness of their God. So Passover, right, was a time... You remember this awesome God who delivered you, redeemed you out of slavery, out of, the, out of Egypt. And then on the 50th day after that, which the Greek for the 50th day is Pentecost, you would have the Feast of Weeks, which is the celebrating the harvest. So there you're celebrating God's provision for you. And then after that, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is celebrating God's provision for you in the desert. So all of this was to remind people about the greatness of their God. Now, here it is. This is the new covenant. Now, this is where we get nerdy, all right? But it sets the tone for our message this morning. In the new covenant, you have the Passover. Who's the Passover lamb? Jesus, right? So he's the one who redeems not just Israel, but the whole world from their sin. And then at Pentecost, you have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, And so remember, Jesus said, from now on, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to harvest, but it's not going to be like fish. It's going to be people. And so at Pentecost, you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember, as Scott uh, talked last week about the, the languages of all the nations were being spoken as a sign that God's grace was now breaking out to the world. And so you have this harvest at Pentecost, the harvest of people now. So these truths of the Old Testament are now repeated in the New. But then, as what's the musical goes up another key, changes to another key. It's the same tune, right? It's the same song, but moves up to another key, to a big, to a wider key. Is that right, man? You're shaking your head. Yes. I got the music part right. <laughs> but but it, it's going up to a. A bigger expanse of God's redemptive work to now pull in the whole world, and so I'm getting emails constantly from Voice of the Martyrs, from Compassion International, from all these ministries, reaching out all over the world. There's probably not a more vibrant church than what you have in communist China, underground, worshiping God, everywhere, South Korea. I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and I was amazed at how many Koreans and Chinese are up there at Gordon-Conwell. And it's just like when you look out and you say, wow, God is doing amazing things. And really, the book of Acts is the beginning of this, these amazing things that God is doing, beginning to do even then. But one of the things you see at each major moment of God's redemptive work when, it's, when, when he's really focusing his people, like the Passover, um, the exodus out of Egypt, you have what's called signs and wonders. These are marvels. These are not just healings. These are healings that are meant to grab your attention. These are healings that are so powerful they're meant to be written down and read about again. Just like Israel would go back to the Passover, but what is it, 10 plagues? that God sent, and then he parted the Red Sea and defeated the the superpower of the Egyptian army. These are signs and wonders. And so these signs and wonders cluster around God's powerful work. And right now, this is what you see in the book of Acts. These clustering of powerful signs and wonders written down now for us to read to feed our faith that this is who our God is. He's nothing less than what we read about here. So let's do that. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read, and then we'll just talk about it. And then we'll read another section. If you have your Bibles, I'll be uh, reading from the NIV. Um, If you don't, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, that... I didn't get much laughter out of that. (laughs) All right. Chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Isn't that amazing? It's like, men of Israel, have you forgotten who your God is? Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham. There, here he goes, like right back to the roots here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. So when we look at this, we see this is totally a setup for God to do a sign and a marvel. Like when we look at who this person is, right? He's been crippled from birth. This man could never walk right never and we know from acts chapter 4 he was over 40 years old so for, for maybe 30 years they've been carrying him to the temple he's been there every day so crippled from birth begging at the temple every day for who knows how long how many people saw this man i mean how impossible was it would it be for him to walk and so what we see is God setting this up. This isn't just a random healing. This was a healing for a particular purpose. And when I read about this, I was thinking about John chapter 9. And that's the healing of the man born blind. Remember, and they had this, this theological question about, well, who sinned? Did, was it him or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer was so revealing. He said, neither. In other words... It's not that they never sinned. He's saying it's not because of sin that he was born blind. What was the purpose of him being born blind? So that God's work could be displayed in his life. Think about that. He's living a life as a blind man. And God ordained that for the express purpose of manifesting his glory in that moment through Jesus. And there's a sense in which I think that explains, it's going to explain everything in the end. It's going to explain why things happen. That in the end, God will display his glory through whatever has happened. And if we can take anything from this blind man born blind, I think we can take that as a distilled moment of God's overarching purpose. But that's also what we see here. This powerful miracle that brought amazement. And notice, Peter calls them to faith. Men of Israel. This is a call to faith. Because this is actually the purpose of the miracles. The purpose of the miracle is another miracle. That is the new birth. Somebody coming to faith in Jesus. That's the point of miracles. Faith is the point. The value of a miracle lies in the faith it produces. That is the point. Faith is the reason, not the healing in and of itself. The healing in and of itself has very limited value. But faith has value for all things, both for this life and the life to come. So the per- And I say this because we can really get focused on miracles, right? Like, that's the thing. Um, and I understand why. If you're suffering physically and you read about these healings, we can really kind of begin acting like the miracle is the thing. Um, but it's really not. It's faith is the thing. Because Peter calls faith, it's like better than pure gold. Your faith opens up a window of life, both now and forever. And we're going to come to that in a minute. But this is like way beyond being healed of blindness, way beyond being healed of being crippled, way beyond being healed of cancer. When you have faith, you are spiritually healed. And your, your whole healing will come. Now, that's the other part of this is that If you're a person of faith, you will be healed physically. We know that. That's coming. That's the great restoration that we hope for. But faith is the point. Believing in Jesus. When you have Jesus, you have everything, even though you might be sick. When you have Jesus, you have everything, even though you might be poor. Jesus is the treasure. In fact, you glorify Jesus better in the midst of sickness, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of suffering, that's when the glory of God manifests so powerfully in your life and my life. This is where Paul got to the point. Remember he said, I've got this thorn in my side um, and I'm praying for the God to take it away. I don't think anybody really knows what it was. Could have been a physical malady, some sort of, probably it was some sort of physical hindrance he had. But God's answer to him My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So this is this upside down thing where you, it's going to be the people who suffered the most in this life, yet confess Jesus, worship Jesus, love Jesus, who will be the ones most showcased in the life to come as the ones most glorifying him. Um, So the, the point isn't the healing point is faith. And Jesus said this, okay? He said in John 14, uh, verse 11, remember they were still doubting who he was? Philip was like, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Like they weren't getting that Jesus was God in the flesh. And he said, he looked at them, and he said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. See that? The issue was their faith. Believe when I say this, or at least believe based on what you've seen that I've done. Right? And then we have the end of John's gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That's amazing, isn't it? It's almost like you have, do you remember the K-Tel greatest hits? I'm dating myself. (laughs) It's almost like with the gospels, you're getting the greatest hits. Right? They're saying, What should we write down? We have limited space. What's the most important thing we can weave into these gospels to highlight the greatness of Jesus? But John concludes by saying, John did Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. The ones we've written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, that's a big concept, having life, but has to do with this life and the life to come. So these are written, these miracles are recorded here, not necessarily that God has bound himself to do everything always like this, like almost like healing is the most important thing. No, these are written for us to to read and believe and have a life in his name. That's the point. A couple places where I think you see this happening um, is when Jesus multiplied the loaves. And remember, they were following him. And, you know, that was a miracle. And he said to them, you're not following me because you saw a miracle. In other words, you don't have faith in me. You you followed me because you had your fill. And you want to have your fill again. That's like pursuing miracles, right? Rather than pursuing Jesus. So the point of the miracle is faith. And so when we read this, we say, okay, this is our God. He is the almighty God. Um. But he goes on to say, this is the same as the God of Abraham. Now, we're going to jump ahead. We're going to go to the end of his sermon and go right to verse 22, because he roots what's happening right now in Old Testament prophetic anticipation. In other words, what's happening right now is merely the result of what God said would happen for over 2,000 years. So our faith is not just either just based on a miracle. And this becomes so important. Our faith is based on prophetic utterances, anticipations that took place over 2,000 years that led up to Jesus. This is no small thing. And this is where I really don't like when we've divorced reason from faith, as if faith is just sort of this leap into the dark. That's not true. The Bible says if you don't believe in God, you're actually a fool. Okay, so you lack wisdom. And we need to get this back as Christians. We need to understand that it is foolish to not believe in God. And it is the most reasonable thing in the world to believe that there's a creator who has acted on behalf of the world. And God has done so many things to engage our minds, to make make us see that, no, this is the safest path. This is the best path. This is the smartest path. Just because there are intelligent people that don't follow the smart path, that's always the case, isn't there? Um, smart people are just sophisticated in their foolishness, right? Sophistication doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. A child who trusts in Jesus is wiser than a physicist who doesn't. Anyway, this going on a bit of a rant there. But the reason is because this is how the apostles evangelized. They went from synagogue to synagogue to say, look, Jesus is Messiah. Look at Deuteronomy. Jesus is the king. Look at Samuel. Jesus is the king. Look at Isaiah. Jesus is the king. So they're reasoning from text. Now, this is what Peter does in his message. Look at verse 22. He's going to root his his preaching in the Old Testament Verse 22, for Moses said, here's Moses writing, I believe it's like 1,500 years before Jesus, okay? For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. So here is Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus, prophetically anticipating Christ. Then he goes on. Interestingly, he names Samuel. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. So why does he begin with Samuel? I think he begins with Samuel because Samuel was the one who... In, in in his books, and Nathan prophesies that David, it would be a, it would be a, somebody following David who would take up the kingship. I think that's why he mentions Samuel here, and then from there you've got all the other uh, prophets referring to this king who will come in the line of David. And Jesus does come in the line of David, so you've got this huge tapestry of prophetic anticipation. Here's here's uh, Nathan prophesying uh, about David, actually about Jesus to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, you would think that's Solomon, right? Because he's the next one who would actually build the physical structure. But he goes on to describe this kingdom in a way that does not describe Solomon's kingdom. He goes on to say, he was the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, I can imagine Jesus in the upper room going through these texts with Peter, right, saying, this is about me. It's coming true in your midst. That was spoken about a thousand years before Jesus. But then he reaches back, right back to Abraham, Father Abraham. Um, And I think because he's addressing Jews, he's going right back to the source of the Jewish nation. Verse 26 I'm sorry, verse 25. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, this is 2,000 years before Jesus, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to... First to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So again, here is this powerful mountain of testimony, which leads up to this miracle. Um, But these are prophetic anticipations of God's powerful acts that he would do through Jesus in now delivering the world from their sin. This is a call to faith. This is exactly what Peter's doing. He's calling them to believe. But now we go back to 13. We're standing in the midst of this healed man who's, you know, it's amazing. He's dancing and and jumping. Like, just think about that. It's like, it's not easy to learn how to walk. I'm watching my one-year-old granddaughter now. We get these little videos, you know. And she she'll take like three steps and like, boop, 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 fall into the parents' arms, you know. And the next, then it's like five steps. It's like that's not easy. Here's this guy who's never walked, right? And he's jumping, praising. No physical therapy. No, oh, okay, do this exercise for six weeks and check back with me. No. He's just instantly doing athletic moves here, okay? So he's standing in the midst of this man healed, raised up, and actually he'll say later, made whole, which is really a powerful word. He's been made whole. And now he turns to his fellow Jews, and he indicts them. He begins with this this indictment. Of them in the context of this miracle and this prophetic 2,000 year old prophetic anticipation, he's now indicting them. Look what he says in verse 13 You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Notice he's making Pilate a better character than them. Like even Pilate, and this is what a testimony that is Pilate saw nothing of any guilt in Jesus and wanted to let him go. Only because of political expediency did he have him crucified, but he knew he was innocent. Goes on to say, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You chose a murderer over the righteous and holy one. These are indictments. You killed, now he's, he's tightening the screws because it goes from servant Jesus to righteous and holy one. But look how he describes Jesus next. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus. Now this is where he invokes the healing to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. The meaning of the healing is Christ is raised and now pouring out his spirit. So notice how he does that. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him as you can all see. So now the, the, the healing itself becomes an indictment as well because they have all this testimony. You've got the raised Jesus, and you've got the resurrect. you've got the healed man as a testimony to the, about the raised Christ. Um, so he's really, this has a purpose, though. He's, he's turning up the indictment as a way to help them to see the desperation of their, of their plight right now. Um. But then he does something interesting here. Notice verse 17. He softens a bit. I'm going I'm to read this section, but we'll come back to verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. That's interesting. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. Right? Right? I know you acted in ignorance, but it's through your actions that God fulfilled those 2,000 years of prophetic anticipation through Jesus. Now that opens up all kinds of questions, doesn't it, which we're not going to get into this morning. But nevertheless, this is the truth. God is sovereign. He ordained even that they would do this to Jesus to fulfill the prophecies that he had made about him for over 2,000 years. He doesn't get into any philosophical disputing. He just states the fact. Right? But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that this, that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out the times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So he's leading them to say, okay, now here's life. This is the plight of your, you're in a, you're in a tragic situation right now. You've 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 done the worst thing possible. You've killed the author of life. But of course, as Hebrews says, Jesus, you can't destroy an indestructible life. And Jesus' life is indestructible. So he was raised from the dead, but they're still guilty, even though it was God's purpose for them to do this. But right now, Peter's offering them a different role in the story. He's saying, now you can have a different place in God's story. And he's giving them the opportunity to do this. And this is what God does with all of us. He gives us an opportunity to take a different place in His story. And notice what He says is that I think this is really interesting. He says, "Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. You acted in ignorance." That's interesting. Um, to because to be ignorant, right? really says that you don't know what you're doing, right? I, I did not know. To be ignorant is to not know. So he seems to be allowing for, he's, he's getting gentle here, a little bit empathetic, and maybe he's thinking of his own situation as well before Jesus was raised where he was doubting who Jesus was. Remember, they're hiding, they're afraid, they didn't understand the point of his death. Um, so he knew ignorance. He had experienced it. So right now, I think he's assuming the best of them that you didn't know what you were doing when you were doing what you're doing. (laughs) Does that make sense? Which I think that's interesting. I'm sure this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think this is interesting in how we deal with unbelievers because I do think we're in an age of severe ignorance. Um, And it's interesting where um, Paul considered himself ignorant before Jesus violently showed himself to Paul, he considered himself ignorant. That is, he didn't know what he was doing. Um, In fact, he says this about himself, really interesting in 1 Timothy. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance. So, and it's another place that's interesting is, is Paul says that he was blameless as a law keeper in Philippians, upholding the law blamelessly. Interesting. But I wonder if there's this category of gentleness toward people who are genuinely ignorant about what they're doing. Like, I, I wonder if Paul really thought he was being loyal to his God in persecuting the church. He didn't think he was sinning. That to a Pharisee loyal to the old covenant law, he saw this teaching as a subversive, heretical teaching leading people away from the God of Abraham. And the Old Testament's pretty clear about what to do about that. Paul was actually being pretty faithful to Old Testament mandates about what happens to idolaters and people who are trying to lead people away from the true faith of the God of Abraham. So... I do wonder if he was ignorant in the sense that he didn't know he was sinning against the God of Israel when he was. And I do wonder, as I look out at the world today, and I hear discussions on Facebook, and I just wonder if, if people don't know. They think they're doing the right thing when we're endorsing all kinds of different sort of uh, you know, sexual immoralities certain confusions that are being brought into people's minds. They, we think we're setting people free when we're actually bringing them into captivity. But there's this idea that, no, we're doing the right thing. So I do wonder about that. And I wonder if there's a sense in which we treat that maybe differently. So sort of like, brothers, I know you act, you're act you acting in ignorance. So it's with a gentleness that you then seek to lead people to repentance. Because there is a harsh way of speaking that the apostles do, if you've ever noticed. Or, or the way Jesus would treat some of the Pharisees. There's some harsh words, insulting words. You're a whitewashed tomb. You're a hypocrite. You're a blind guide. You're a serpent. The bunch of you, you're a brood of vipers. You're an unmarked tomb. Jude saying, you're a brute beast. Um... Peter saying, you're a blemish at the love feasts. But if you look at each of those, I think what they've got are people who know what they're doing. They know who God is and what his requirements are, and they've, they've turned anyway. So these, this takes especially strong medicine in those situations. And and I think they say say those words with a goal toward repentance as well. I think Jesus was speaking these harsh words in Matthew 23 redemptively, trying to wake them up to see the the evil that they're actually doing. Because there's one place in John 12 where it talks about some of the Pharisees who did believe, but because they were afraid of losing their position at the synagogue and in society... They refused to follow Jesus, even though they believed that he was the Messiah. You see, that's, that's more knowingly sinning. So I do wonder if this opens up this category of ignorant sin versus knowing, knowingly sinning. Both guilty, um, but not equally so. Anyway, does that make sense? But I, I found that helpful because I feel like in dealing with non-Christians, it's like... How do you do it? And I think this gives us some, some wisdom into that. Because that, I know before I came to Jesus, I can't say I know I was rebelling against God. Like, yeah, today I'm going to rebel against God. You know, and I remember when I was in the service, there, people would witness to me and they'd hand me tracks on my way out to the village to go drink at the bar. And I would take the track, kind of laugh. The first trash can I came to, I'd throw it away. But I couldn't say I would look back on that and say, yeah, I'm throwing God in the trash can. I, wouldn't, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, I don't know who you people are, and I don't, I don't want to listen to you. I didn't see that as a rejection of God. I saw it as a rejected of the, rejection of these guys at the, at the gate to the base. So I do wonder if there's that element. Um, because I was in darkness. I was never taught. I never went to church. I had no idea what Christianity was. I was ignorant ignorant and that's the thing Um, I needed knowledge I needed teaching I needed to be challenged with who Jesus is anyway what time is it okay (laughs) I'm gonna bring this in for a landing here so if we come to verse 19 and this again this is so important but I'm just gonna make a quick point here this is what he says to do in response to this. Notice he doesn't get into philosophical meandering about how could they be guilty of God's purpose, blah, blah, blah. Interesting discussion. But that's not what he does here. He says, this is what you are to do to escape your situation. Repent then, this is the NIV, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That betraying Jesus, turning over the holy and righteous one, killing the author of life, even that can be wiped out. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing such a great phrase may come from the Lord. Now, I want to say something briefly about this. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Um, This is, I could go on about this, but I'm going to try not to. I think this is really important to get. That repenting, and this is a good sort of understanding of what repentance is, is turning, and I don't know if Scott's talked about this in the past, repentance is a turning from wickedness, from sin, from ignorance, to wisdom, to Jesus, but it's the whole you turning. It's everything about you turning. Um, it's it's you as a whole being turning to God. Now this becomes very important because I think we're we're kind of plagued by what I would call a minimalist gospel these days, where we might say, "Believe these three things, check, check, check. You're saved." We hope you get the Spirit, and it sticks. We'll know because you'll show up at church next week. Right? That's not right. The the call to repentance is the whole person turning from idols, from sin, from wickedness, from idolatries, turning to God, to worship, the one true God, finding out what pleases Him. It's the whole person turning, and then when that happens... Sins are wiped out, but you can't keep your idols and expect your sins to be wiped out. And this is the danger of the minimalist gospel, I think, that plagues the church today, is that, no, this is a turning of the whole person. And I think the best, way, if you memorize a verse this week, which I would recommend memorizing this one, Rachel, could we look up Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7? Get that there? This is such a good verse. This is actually on a synagogue right down the street from from my house, which I thought was really profound. This is Isaiah. This is is one of the best statements I think we have on what it means to turn turn to God. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Do You see that? And the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, into our God, for he will freely pardon. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't think we have any Bibles, do we? Or maybe they're. I'll get one after the service. All right. Excellent. Definitely, definitely get a Bible. So follow this with me, okay? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. What does that mean? Seek the Lord. Call on him. It means let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. Do you see that? So turning to the Lord is the wicked forsaking his way and the evil man even his thoughts. So it's the whole person turning to God. And what happens as a result? And he will have mercy on him into our God, for he will freely or abundantly pardon. So the pardon comes with the whole person turning. But you don't get the pardon without the person turning, right? That's the point. And I think too many times we're hearing too many pardons without any turning, and that just cannot be. And actually, it's deceptive. Because we come before the judgment, and we've been told over and over again in various ways, no turning necessary. Um, and that's, that's just not good. That's not a place to be. We must become worshipers, right? And actually, it's for our good that we do that. Because now, if we go, I, am, I promise I'm closing up. If you come back to Acts chapter three, what happens? Your sins are wiped out. Times of refreshing me come from the Lord, which I think is a reference to the Holy Spirit, because in Acts chapter two he talks about repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, which is interesting. Why are you getting baptized? So my sins can be forgiven. Ooh, is that Catholic? You know, no, it's not, because in baptism. It is both celebrating what God has done for you, but also that you die to sin and live for Jesus. That's also baptism. It celebrates what God has done for you, but also now in this marriage, how you are now committed to Jesus. So repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins is exactly what he's saying right here. Repent and turn to the Lord so that your sins might be forgiven. In times of refreshing may come from the Lord... Before, Acts chapter 2, is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what the gift of the Holy Spirit is, is it is times of refreshing. It is the knowledge that your sins have been wiped out. It is now living a life which is um, holy in the sense of good. It's a good life. And, and you're, you're being blessed through your good life. And you're a blessing to others in your good life. Goodness just brings goodness. It brings wholeness and peace. And when, you, when you're around goodness, it's just palpable. Like, you don't have to hide your wallet, right? You don't have to worry about being um, gossiped about. It's a, it's a place of rest. And that's where I think God refers to this prophetically as you'll sit in the shade. You know, you'll be this, it'll be refreshing. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings refreshment. He brings peace. Okay, so that's your present experience. But look at the great goal we have. Look at the great destiny. As he goes on, he says, this ushers us into this reality that Christ, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Christ is also king, right? Is king. And that he may send the king who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven Until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's our future. Restore everything. And this is where I think the healing, right, becomes this breaking in, this restoration of this individual man as a sign of the future restoration when all will be healed. All will be raised from the dead. All will be delivered, finally, from everything that hinders us. This is the great restoration. That's your future if you're a Christian. That's the benefit of turning your whole self to God. Life, that's how Jesus puts it. You'll have fullness. This is the future of every Christian. Think about how awesome that is. Think about the despair in the world today you know, live as best as I can and eat as much as I can and drink and, you know, I, okay, I like food. I like beverages. But it, look, that's not like, it's, you're going to reach a point where you're not going to be able to eat everything you want. Right? I mean, these things terminate. But God opens up this future in which there's, it's this, and I think of Ukraine right now. I mean, come on, that's just brutal stuff. Aren't we seeing how brutal we can be? But this brutality happens in homes all over this country. It's just hitting the screens. Like, here's, here's, here's what people can do to each other. And feel righteous doing so. But this is where I'm like, Restoration, Jesus, right? Bring it. Bring the restoration. Bring wholeness. Bring peace. And he's going to. How do we know he's going to? Because he healed a cripple. Which showed that he raised from the dead. Which was anticipated for over 2,000 years in prophetic anticipation. Praise be to God. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your purpose, Lord. Of restoration. Thank you for this account that you give us in Acts, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this would not just be a story we read, but it would fuel our faith, God. Make us treasure you, Lord, above all things. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.